Hello, and welcome to the September 15, 2022 Rand County Parks and Open Space Commission. We need to apologize to those that have been trying to connect on video. Uh, seems that we're not going to be able to offer that, but audio is, is still running. Is that correct, Max? Yes. Text. Correct. Good. Okay. Well, I will go ahead and call the meeting to order, and we will start with public comment. And we're going to have people in the chamber. If there's anyone here that would like to make a comment, I, unfortunately, I don't know how we're going to hear anyone from online making comments. I'm not sure that we're going to have that capability. Okay. Anyone in the chamber wish to make a public comment on an item that's not on the agenda? Seeing none. Before I move to the director's report, I want to take this opportunity to say goodbye to my fellow commissioners. I've been up here for 16 years. And I have submitted my resignation, talked to Max and Kevin and Chris before and the board. And so today will be my last commission meeting, but I'm leaving it in good hands. And I really appreciate how well we've all worked together. And of course, I really appreciate the staff. You guys have been doing an excellent job. Thank you, Dennis. And with that, let's move to the director's report. Thanks, Dennis. Well, I'm going to be uh, brief because we actually have a lot of really amazing um, presentations today for you. Um, and uh, just to let you know, there's some great uh, um, trail work going on, uh, some improvements around Pacheco Pond uh, in the around the Indian Valley um, preserves, and then also uh, in the White's Hill uh, preserve. Uh, fixing a bridge that was damaged and pouring some new footings. Um, and additionally, we're doing a lot of vegetation management, fuels reduction work uh, up on San Geronimo uh, Valley up on the ridge there. And then additionally, um, part of the Ross Valley fuel break work uh, has gotten started on, on open space lands in partnership with uh, County Fire Department, Ross Valley Fire, and um, the Marin Wildfire Protection Authority. So, um, just an appreciation to all the partnerships that helped to make that happen. And uh, that concludes my report. Okay, commissioners, any questions, comments to the director? Seeing none, anyone in the public? Seeing none there, well, let's go ahead to item four. Approval of approval of the minutes is distributed. I didn't even get to read the actual. <laughs> just trying okay, to get it going. There is, there's an approval. Is there a second? Any corrections? None. Do we have a second? Okay. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, very good. Item number five, recommendations for fiscal year 22-23 and um, is part of our community grants awards, which I have really enjoyed for the last nine years. And I believe, Kevin, you're going to make a presentation. Perfect. Good afternoon, Commission. Today, we're asking you to recommend to the Board of Supervisors they approve the 26 uh, grant agreements that are described before you in the memo included in your packet. Uh, I gave a more extensive presentation the last time we met, but essentially we worked closely with the Youth Commission to do a youth survey and we focused heavily on um, youth access and mental health this year. And in the grant applications this year, I saw a couple of trends. One was that 
there are more and new youth organizations applying. So there are a lot of good ideas and a broader network of service that'll be provided through these grants this coming year. And I also heard from a lot of our senior serving organizations that while they'll continue to do the important work of serving seniors in our community, they're thinking a lot more after seeing these results about intergenerational park access and bringing people of different ages together. So that was also exciting to see. I wanna thank um, Commissioner O'Brien, Kennings and Scremen for participating this year. And uh, I also just wanna say, um, Commissioner Stomp participated in uh, a couple of Fridays ago, a meeting of the Parks Equity Roundtable in one of our parks. And there are a couple of themes that stood out that relates to this grant program. One is that it really affirmed the combined approach of reducing or eliminating park fees to improve access for some of these groups, along with um, a cultural competence approach and relationship building approach that all these grantees really uh, exemplify. And um, so everyone felt like this is a really strong program and a successful approach, but they also talked about a real strong desire to work together more, to network more, to share um, programs and strategies. And so I just wanted to appreciate and acknowledge Commissioner Scremen because for the last nine years um, and with his leadership with this program, he's been asking for us to bring together, convene these grantees more often so they can share strategies and build relationships. And I think we can um, do more of that in the future and our equity roundtable just really um, reinforced that for us. So um, Dennis, I just wanna appreciate you for all the leadership and support on this program over the years and um, we'll continue to do the good work Thank you. going forward. Commissioners, you have any questions? We have a list of the recipients. I, just a quick question. Um, this year, this money, this is the, this totals two hundred thousand um, dollars. Is this money part of the department budget, or does it come from grants or Measure A money, or from somewhere else? It's a good question. It comes from our portion of the Measure A funding as a part of our budget. So, will it be the same next year because we're going to have less money because of the gap? Uh, we'll continue to commit about two hundred thousand dollars toward this program. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Yes, Commissioner. Mary? What is the geographical allocation of the grants? It's a great question. So we look at this both um, thematically as far as like different communities served, meaning groups, but we also look at this geographically. And so there's a pretty even distribution um, across Novato, Canal, Marin City, and West Marin, which are primary communities, and then some that actually serve across those communities as a network. Um, yeah. Any other questions, comments? Okay. okay. Anyone from the public? Seeing none. I believe this is an action item, and we need to approve this recommendation that will go before the Board of Supervisors. Move approval. Second. All in favor? All in favor. Aye. Great job, Kevin. Thank you. All right. We will move on now to uh, item number six, an update on pending park and open space district land acquisition. Thanks, commissioners. I'll introduce Carl Summers and Craig Richardson from our acquisitions and planning team. And this computer doesn't have the presentation, but Chris is walking over en route with the computer that has the presentation, which he should be able to plug in and put it up on the screen for you. But um, I will turn it over to the two of you. Maybe you can get started without it. And once we get it, uh, we'll add that in. Does sure. that sound good? So as a 
short. Oh, you got to turn on your mic. Yeah, push it harder. So as a just short contextualizing preamble, this has been uh, really a major year in acquisitions for Marin County Parks and the Open Space District, probably the most significant year for real estate acquisition. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say 20 years. Um, and you know, it's it's doubly significant, I think, because this was a year, of course, that we wound down, you know, the first generation of Measure A and are uh, starting Measure A re-implementation of Measure A 2.0. And we'll come back around full circle to that when we get to the very last slide. But in brief, we have two, you know, really long, two major acquisition um, projects in advanced development right now. And, and I think it's fair to say that they're you know, of generational significance, they're longstanding priorities, uh, and we're not even all the way quite done yet. There's still uh, a little bit more to come that's not quite ready for prime time yet that will probably be back to your commission um, uh, briefly within maybe uh, one or two cycles from now to talk about. But for today, we got two acquisitions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over the first, the Martha, property acquisition down on the Tiburon Peninsula. And then after I'm done, uh, Craig Richardson, senior open space planner who also works on acquisitions will step in to give an overview of our, uh, uh, the Smith property acquisition that's gonna wrap up uh, protection and acquisition of a, of a new park, a new uh, county park at Bucks Landing here just down the road in North San Pedro. So contextualizing a little bit, actually just it's worth taking note, taking a, a look at this photograph. This photograph was taken from Old St. Hillary's Preserve uh, on the Tiburon Peninsula. The fence line that you see in the medium ground there is the, the property boundary and the property beyond that uh, out on the hillside there with that majestic um, uh, viewpoint is the what's commonly known as the Martha property. Uh, you can appreciate here in this shot the the view of the Golden Gate, and uh, yeah. what you can't see necessarily is that the, you really get a full panoramic, complete view of San Francisco and much, much, much else beyond that. So this again is for context. You can see the 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 Martha property, uh, Eastern Point, sometimes it's called, is there outlined in heavy black line. You can see that this is going to more or less double, maybe more than double, uh, the size of the preserve that's currently managed as Old St. Hillary's. Um, and you can also get a sense uh, from that from that map of just how strategic and, and important from a public access and, and recreation uh, resource standpoint that property really is. This, this, this drives the home point home a little bit further. This is a, a view obviously taken from out in the bay. Uh, the 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 bald hill here, the, the open space land in the foreground is the Martha property, the subject property. You can see then kind of recreate for yourself the view that you'd have there looking back towards uh, TAM and the virtually all of Central Marin. Uh, this, this turned around looking back the other way and really it's only a partial view. Um, you can see in this, this, this recreated view, Angel Island and the whole East Bay, you can see Oakland, Berkeley and the Oakland Hills. But then just imagine turning, you know, slightly to your right and getting that full, complete panoramic view of the city and the Golden Gate, and then to the left and getting the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge and all of San Pablo Bay. 
the property is is rich in in natural resources, um, not just you know rare and endangered, but actually in some cases endemic to the Tiburon Peninsula. Those of you that are really familiar with Old St. Hillary's will know this uh, list of our greatest hits, um, including the the, the Tiburon Jewel Flower. Um, the as I said at the beginning of my comments, this is a generational you know, aspiration, maybe more than that. I mean, I think probably it goes all the way back to the very foundation of the open space district in the early 1970s. Um, the, the screenshot here, just for succinctness sake, is a page out of our uh, strategic plan, 2008 strategic plan. The circles on the map, it's actually an appendix to the strategic plan that's our acquisition plan. The circles on the map here are, are, are the opportunity zones, and those actually also are just directly reflect the, the, the priority conservation areas in the in the in ABAG and MTC's plan bay area. So this has the support of regional planning frameworks. And not only are you know agency regional planning frameworks, but several other you know high profile nonprofit driven conservation initiatives initiatives as well. So this property is adjacent to Old St. Hillary's and it's linked in more ways than one, uh, particularly through the financing. So Old St. Hillary's was acquired back in the mid 90s, um, largely on the basis of two tax measures that were passed that in turn funded uh, bond issues that supported the acquisition of those parcels. Uh, there was great foresight actually when those community facilities districts were created and also writing in an ability to use the funds from those districts to, towards the, to apply towards the purchase of, of the Martha property should it ever become available. So that's gonna allow us to take uh, the $2.1 million that are remaining on account and those funds and actually apply directly to the purchase price for the Martha property. So that's part of where we're going to get our, our component of the, of the funding price, purchase price. So another thing to note is that the district, the community facilities district that was used in the mid-90s to support the purchase of Old St. Hillary's, you're looking at the map now, and just for shorthand, it's all of Belvedere and everything in Tiburon east of Trestle Glen. So that whole end of the Tiburon Peninsula. Um, this is exactly the same map that's going before the voters this November uh, in just a, a few short weeks um, for the voters in Belvedere and part of Tiburon to decide whether or not to tax themselves again to support the acquisition of the Martha property. Um, the shorthand again for the just the, the, the mechanics from the taxpayer's point of view, currently the the, the parcels in this in this boundary line are being assessed just under $200 per parcel to support those older community facilities districts. Should they approve the creation of a new community facilities district and, and, and approve tax themselves to support the purchase of the Martha property, those older assessments go away. So those are retired, will pay off the remaining debt, and there'll be a new assessment of $335 leveled, leveled against each parcel. So that's a net increase of around $100. $40 a parcel. So you see here, this is a summary of what it takes to get all the way to the purchase price. The purchase price negotiated by the Trust for Public Land uh, is $42.1 million. The basic structure here is that the Trust for Public Land is going to purchase the property directly from the Martha Company. And then the, the open space district will purchase the property from the Trust for Public Land. Um, this will all happen on the same day. So our purchase price from tr the Trust for Public Land as the open space district is $26.1 million. Uh, TPL has to come up with a total of 42.1 million. So the way we get to our fund, our purchase price is that 2.1 that already 
discussed from the prior community facilities districts. We don't know exactly how much the new bond issue is going to generate until we know what interest rate we'll get. That'll be, of course, much closer to the time we go to market, but we're shooting for around $18 million in proceeds on the basis of that $335 per parcel tax. And then the board of directors has already committed, or the board of supervisors, sorry, has already committed $6 million from the Measure A land acquisition fund uh, and earmarked that specifically for this purpose. So that add all that up, that gets you to 26.1. The balance of the funding that TPL needs to complete their purchase, they're gonna have to get through fundraising. And we expect most or all that we see, we'll see to be on the basis of private donations. There may be uh, state grants and I'll speak to that in just a second. Um, schedule, so again, the very next thing and probably the most important step along the way is the election in November. That's really where the, 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 the taxpayers and, and on the, the end of the Temperon Peninsula are gonna decide for themselves whether they wanna carry, you know, shoulder not quite half of the burden uh, and they'll vote yes or no. If they do decide then, if they vote yes and we create the community facilities district, we'll have until the end of uh, March, 2023 to complete our due diligence. In brief, we're mostly done with that now. Uh, it's a pretty known quantity at this point after 40 years of, of shopping. Um, TPL, really the timeline ultimately will be driven by how long it takes TPL to raise the balance of the funds through their fundraising campaign. Uh, they have until at the very latest, the end of August, 2024. And I mentioned a moment ago that depending on how successful they are with private donations, they may end up applying for uh, public funds. They may end up applying for a private grant that, that would require our agreement to deed restrictions, specific deed restrictions, right? Strings, in other words, that would come with the grant. If that happens, um, the, our agreement with the Trust for Public Land provides that we have to take any uh, proposed restrictions back to our board in open session for the board to approve uh, or decline those, those restrictions at that time. And that's it on Martha. Let's pause for a second and take questions or comments. We can do it that way. When was the last appraisal on the property and what was the appraisal dip price? Uh, that's an excellent question, uh, um, Commissioner Stomp, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that. That is actually probably the most significant outstanding piece of due diligence. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. We don't actually have, a, we don't have an appraisal report. The deal was negotiated between the Trust for Public Land and the Martha Company on the basis of appraisal research uh, that they had commissioned and worked with over the course of a couple of years. Um, that's not to say the data is a couple years old, but it's just they've been working on it for a long time. Uh, the report itself, as I understand, is just being completed now, and we can't, you know, review and speak with authority on how they got to that number until we have a report. But we, you know, our, of course, our agreement allows us to review and and approve or not uh, their report. So we're still waiting on that, and that's probably the most significant, outstanding piece of due diligence. Because the purchase price is so large, would it not be in our best interest for the county not to rely on their appraisal and get our own appraisal done? That, I, I, I think in this case, I, I don't know that that's ever, that's how this would ever be done. It does sometimes happen, for instance, when the, when you have a single buyer and a single purchaser that for instance, if the county was pursuing this alone, we might commission two or three independent appraisals 
and then try to somehow through the negotiation and on based on our own review, work our way to one that we would rely on. In this case, because there's so many parties, one thing you're guaranteed of, you're never gonna get the same conclusion from two different appraisers. So what, and, and there's a, any, any appraiser will tell you that there's always a, 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 a that, that any individual number, they have to come up with a number, but it's always located within a range. And so what we, would I think always typically do in these situations and what we have, what we do plan to do in this instance, when the appraisal comes in is we're going to commission an independent third party review. So we're hiring a licensed appraiser to do an independent third party review of that appraisal and to give us an independent report uh, and assessment of its reliableness. And that reform of that report, they're not going to come back and say, well, I don't think it's worth this. I think it's worth this. They're going to look at the, the methodology Mm -hmm. and and say and identify any gaps in the analysis and you know they might say overall i don't think this conclusion is supported be, or they might just say this conclusion might be supported but there are these gaps in the analysis and these need to be addressed one way or the other and if that affects the value then it does but i can't say that this is a reliable report right now or they'll say it is a reliable report right okay now. um what's the total acreage the topography the grade of the I, I'm not familiar with this parcel. It's it's really close to 100 acres. It's a hundred. We, we don't have a survey, and so it, call it 100 acres. It may be a little bit bigger than that. We don't have a survey. Well, and that's not unusual. We almost never have surveys really? completed for properties uh, as of the date that we acquire them. Oh, but you will get a survey. In this case, and actually we don't always immediately follow up and do a survey. In this case, I am almost certain that we will in relatively short order follow up and get a complete survey by the time that uh, not very long after we acquire the property. And there, you know, I'm going to say that there's no survey because we've asked for it repeatedly if there was, and we haven't been provided with one. There may, there may yet be one that comes to us uh, um, that's been completed in the past, but the property is, is, is around a hundred acres. It is um, steep, but not especially so by Marin County standards. Uh, you can see in this photograph, this actually gives a pretty good representation of the uh, ground cover and, and, and vegetation types and the slopes. There are, you know, uh, th there are a mix of geotechnical conditions on the site. Mm -hmm. So there are, um, there are more and less active slides in different parts of the property. And of course, that's all been exhaustively studied uh, in the many decades of lawsuits around the proposed development there. Um, the where without, because, and it would be inappropriate for us to speak in too much detail about the history of the lawsuit, because we, as the open space district, we're not a party to that. But um, in brief, there is a um, very old decision by the courts that, and I'm, I'm gonna speak very generally because I don't wanna misspeak. Um, there is a very old decision by the courts that has been at this point consistently upheld after decades of challenges that the County of Marin uh, cannot not process an application and needs to work with, would, would have to work with an application on the part of the property owner to develop a density, I think of 41 or 42 units on the site. So there are, there is a, I think it's fair to say at this point, a legal 
legally defended entitlement to 40 some odd units on the property in some form factor that there's not necessarily, I don't think a final map to show where those would all go, but there's, that's the, that's what the appraisal report when we get it will be based on is, is a density of 40. And I'm sorry that I don't have the exact number at the top of my tongue, but 41 or 42 units. Really? You wouldn't, because when I do my appraisals for, for when I purchase property for affordable housing, we base, it's the appraisal, there's two methodologies, and we we use it based on the intended use, because you're never going to, the open space district or the county of rent is never going to build 42 units on that. We, if you'd like us to come back and make a report, I, again, I can't go much further right now because I don't, there's not a, I don't have a report. I can't tell you actually how the report is written, how the appraiser approached the problem definitively okay. because I haven't seen the report. Um, yeah. The appraisal will definitely be, provide a conclusion of value based on the highest and best use of the property. Um, as to what that highest and best use is determined to be and exactly at what density, I don't know because I haven't seen the report, but I have a feeling it's not anything less than the 42 units that's right now, you know, approved. yeah, approved. Okay, okay, just, sorry, just one more question is, so the 16 million that isn't secured yet, uh, no amount, am I correct that no amount of the new parcel tax is gonna help fill that gap? It's additional fundraising? That's right, that's correct, yeah. The The $335, per parcel tax is, is then money that's collected over the decades and used to pay off the bond holders, right? So there'll be a bond issue that right. generates a lump sum that we use to get that $18 million. While I'm on the subject, you know, the, the, we hope and we'll see what, it, what it, where interest rates are, but the goal is to generate as much as $23 million uh, through the bond sale. And then that net between the 18 million we're trying to get to and the 23 is a lot of that. I mean, some of it's just cost of paying for the cost of borrowing, but but the bulk of that is going to pay off the older uh, bond issues and retire those so that we can start fresh and get rid of those old assessments. Does, the, uh, does that organization have any uh, track record of raising that kind of money? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Carlos, I think you know I'm a, I've been a state certified real estate appraiser for about the last 30 years, so I'm sort of familiar with this process. Um, the question, uh, I, I just want to be clear here that one of the reasons we don't have an appraisal is because we're not a party to the sale the sales between the Martha company and TPL. So we're not yet, unless we want to do it on our own, we're not entitled to an appraisal because appraisal we're not a client. Right. Yes, we, we would have to have the Martha company's approval to commission our own appraisal. Well, you can do your, I mean, you can appraise anything sure, you want. But to do a compliant appraisal yeah, yeah. of their property because yeah, but I'm just, I would, yeah. just wanted to be right. clear that right. one of the reasons we don't have it is because right. we're not a party to the sale. Right. Um, uh, so, and then again, just to, just to the point, the value of the property is highest and best use. And while, while I, I, my memory is that what you were saying is correct, that the agreement between the Martha company and the, 
through the court process was 41 or 42 homes on the on the site. The the question is if that if that's like one home for every two acres, then what's the value of each lot? It's got to be at least one or two million dollars. I would I would think so. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the appraisal is once once we proceed down the line. The theory that uh, that the market's going south, as you might read in the newspapers or other media sources, that the market's going south may be true nationally, but I can tell you anecdotally that it's not true in Marin County. The real estate market in Marin County is just fine. And I just did an appraisal last week of a house within this district, which is selling for $12 million. So it's, you know, things are just fine because people have money. I've said this to some of the members of the uh, of the Board of Supervisors that when they're talking about affordable housing, a man who singly has the ability to pay $12 million for a home, he, that's affordable housing to him because he can afford to buy it. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> Easy question for you, Carl. Um, on the special um, natural resources, you, you list a red-legged frog. Um, does that mean that they're on the property or is it just critical habitat? Yeah, no, they're, they're, I, I'm, I don't think I'm misspeaking. They're, they're on the property. There actually is a small, I don't think I have a map that shows it, but they're, yeah, no, you can see actually, can you see the tiny inholding, uh, the inset, the little tiny heavy black box inside yes. the Martha parcel there? Yeah. At the top in the center of the property? So that those are springs that are actually not part of the Martha Company Holdings. They're their own separately, um, and there's an easement that crosses the Martha Company property that takes you know water from those seeps, those springs, down to the Kyle Gardens, which I, I've never oh. been there, but they're you know on the National Register of Historic Places off of yeah. Paradise Drive. So the the under, my understanding is the frogs are relying on that wet habitat around the springs and then the, then are dispersing across uh, the property. Cool. Uh, and, and then the other question is, um, if the bond measure fails, um, what, what's the implication of that? And um, what incentives do the voters have to approve the, the bond measure? I mean, I that's up to each individual voter in terms of what their incentives are. Um, their incentive, though, I guess just uh, I hope this is not being too tried or obvious, would be if they want to be assured, assured of protecting the property in its totality and at the soonest, you know, opportunity. If it if the measure is not approved, then then the deal is very definitely off and at a at, at best case is back to the drawing board. And I, you know, I, I can't speak for any either of the parties of the Martha Company or the Trust Republic Plan as to whether they'd be able to okay. I, th I think you answered yeah. the question. No, in other words, um if if the taxpayers decide not to levy the tax upon themselves, then the the, the purchase probably would not go go forward. My understanding, and I, I don't think I'm I can say this in public, is that the agreement between the Trust Republic Plan and the Martha Company has a has a provision in it that explicitly states that if the election, you know, fails, that the Martha Company has the right at the end of this calendar year to exit the agreement. So Thank that, you. yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. I know of three generations of Tiburon City Council that had their fingers crossed. 
they've been working on this. Well, and Dennis, I'm I'm in particular glad that we had got to be here and have this conversation and this presentation at your last meeting before you were gone for good. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. You want to continue with other actions? Sure. Was this just a quick one? Is this a two-thirds vote by the city or yes, it is. All right. Well, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, Craig Richardson, senior planner. I'm excited to be here today to uh, share with you an update on the Smith property at Bucks Landing acquisition. Um, so I'm going to start by talking a little bit about um, the history of this acquisition in its totality. Uh, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about why we're acquiring the Smith property, and then I'll finish up um, looking at some of the acquisition details and next steps. So you, you may remember that back on July 12th, the Board of Supervisors um, issued a notice of intent to purchase real property related to the Smith property, and subsequently, about a month later, um, followed up by authorizing the president to enter into the purchase and sale agreement that we're here to talk to you about today. So to start off, um, we've got a map, and you can see uh, the Smith property is the red blob there uh, at the mouth of Las Galinas Creek just across the way from McGinnis Park. Um, it's got you know, Santa Venetia Marsh there to the west and China Camp State Park to the, uh, to the east and the south. Um, <clears throat> I think this is a good moment to, to talk a little bit about the history of uh, the acquisition of Bucks Landing. And really for the department, it starts in a formal way back in 2008 in that strategic plan that Carl showed you a slide of uh, when we identified the area as desirable for acquisition. And the reason for that was the, uh, the public access to the bay that exists on that site uh, via the boat ramp. And at that time, there was also um, uh, advocacy on the part of the, the community there to have that included as a, a desirable place for a park. And so uh, since that time, the residents of Santa Benicia and also the, the uh, parks department worked diligently to identify uh, funding sources and negotiate with the, the various landowners to try to acquire the Bucks Landing property. And so in 2015, um, the neighbors were successful in acquiring what, uh, what's referred to as the Heron Hill property. And that's that green property that um, shares a boundary with the orange Bucks Landing. Uh, so they acquired that in 2014, I believe, and then uh, managed to negotiate to have the property then donated to the Open Space District, um, which is uh, managing it today. Then in 2020, the county took ownership of the what we call Bucks Landing Park, and that's that orange blob um, with the Bucks Landing label. And again, that was a community-led initiative. Uh, the residents got together and negotiated a deal and acquired the property and subsequently uh, sold it to the county. So then fast forward to today, uh, we are, you know, in, in, entered into this purchase agreement, purchase and sale agreement for the Smith property. The red blob is the the, the final piece of the Bucks Landing acquisition, and uh, we are excited to be at this point. This is just another view of the property. It gives you a sense of uh, the topography um, and how it sits in relation to the the other aspects of of Bucks Landing. Um, but it also is a good visual display of how the property sits within the greater wetland complex around there. And you can see that the majority of the Smith property is actually uh, comprised of uh, salt marsh. All right, so let's talk a little bit about why we want to acquire the Smith property. Um, so there's that map there on the left of the screen. And 
Uh, you can see towards the top of that map, there's a, an icon and that denotes the uh, boat ramp that it, it exists out there. And that's on county property. And then to the south of that, you can see the green area, which is the, the current Bucks Landing Park. And you can see the dotted line that leads from Bucks Landing Park to the boat ramp has to cross the Smith property. And so when we acquired the Bucks Landing site back in 2020, we also uh, were able to negotiate a license agreement with the Smith brothers to uh, allow the public to access the boat ramp. But that license agreement had a five-year uh, expiration date. And so um, by acquiring the property, we are uh, ensuring that the public's going to have access to that boat ramp into the future. Um, and so we're real excited about that. I think this this map is also um, provides a good visual uh, display to to talk about how acquiring the Smith property is going to allow us to just uh, have a lot more flexibility in how the site is managed as a park. If anybody, if any of you have been down there uh, today, you know that it it, fe it feels a little bit funky. And once we're able to acquire the Smith property, um, we'll, we'll be able to manage it like a park. All right, then. Uh, the other reason to acquire the property, as as I said, you know, it's the majority of the site is uh, comprised of salt marsh habitat, and we all know that's a high value habit, habitat uh, and has lots of of uh, important critters in it. And in fact, since we've owned Bucks Landing, um, the Bucks Landing Park site, we've seen uh, these three species out there, which are uh, endangered or threatened. So it, the salt marsh harvest mouse, the Ridgeways rail, and the black rail. Um, so we're excited to, <coughs> pardon me, we're excited to be able to protect this habitat for these uh, species by acquiring Smith. All right, so some of the acquisition details, it's a 7.3 acre site. Um, that's one acre of developed area. And so that's historically where the boats have been stored out on the site. And then the remaining 6.3 acres of wetland. Of course, we're going to maintain public access to the bay through the acquisition. Uh, and the fair market value for this property, uh, as determined by an appraiser, was $1.75 million. So that's what our purchase price is. Um, and then we are also providing an additional $100,000 for property cleanup. So that's going to allow the county to receive the property free and clear of, of any of the, the boats or other personal property. So next steps and timeline. Uh, the due diligence period is set to expire here in a few days on September 18th. And in fact, we've released all of the contingencies related to the, the due diligence period. And that's allowed the seller to initiate their cleanup uh, process. Um, due to the complexity of that process, they have until March 17th, 2023, uh, if they need it. And so we've agreed to close escrow uh, by March 30th of 2023. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to, to Carl to just wrap up our presentation. Let me check briefly to see if there's any commissioners with questions on your presentation, Craig. Yes, Mary. What is the um, currently the quality of the ramp? Uh, and is the county planning to improve that boat ramp? And we're paying $100,000 to clean up the property we're purchasing. That seems the I, I can speak to that, Commissioner Stomp, the on that last point first. The and the the appraisal for this property, highest and best use, was based on its current use as a boat storage facility, as a, as a dry storage facility for, for boats. So what we're buying, right, is a is a property based on its use as a business. It's not based on its, it's not, it's not, it wasn't appraised as vacant land. It was appraised as a, as a going concern. 
And so we're buying the going concern and we want to wind down the going concern. And we, we wanted to not be responsible for winding down the business ourselves. So to get a clean site, we paid a separately negotiated fee on top of the, the fair market value purchase price to the, to the seller to undertake to wind down that business. Wouldn't they take that money out of their proceeds instead of the county paying for that? I mean, they might have agreed to do that, but they wouldn't. And 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 it is a they there there was a fair point to be made that that's that wasn't included in the value of what we were paying for. What we were paying for was, you know, to be handed the keys of a of a of a boat storage business. You know, if if somebody sells their self storage business what they're assuming when they get the full fair market value in the sale is that they can then get to turn over to you the keys of the self-storage business and walk away. They're not assuming that they then additionally have to, you know, um, vacate the property of all the private property, terminate all the rental agreements and, and demolish the structure. I'd, I'd add, I mean, I think we're getting a fairly good deal out of it. I, in addition to the boats on the property, there's a bunch of just kind of um, ad hoc, structures and buildings and things like that that have been used for various uses over time and from my experience as a government agency trying to deconstruct buildings or um, demolish them clean them up is very time consuming for our staff have to go through a lot of hoops and um, and so having a private property take care of it before we take on ownership makes it much much simpler in the long term for us okay I just have a difference of opinion on us, the county doing it versus the sellers. Any other commissioners? Yeah, Oscar? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, just to follow up on the point, isn't it also true though that if the site was clean when you were buying it, the cost would be substantially higher? So it's a net. I don't if the if the no. if if the property was vacated, it would be appraised on a totally different premise, right? Because what in this case the report was based on an income and yeah, approach. Yeah, that's yeah. my point. Yeah. Is is this ramp currently in use? Uh, that was Commissioner Stomp's other question. So the the ramp is an unpermitted structure. The ramp was not the ramp is the ramp itself is on county land, submerged county lands. It was not built as a permitted structure. It was built as an encroachment and it's been used for decades as an encroachment. Um it just is what it is. The 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 so the, the ramp is not in great condition. It's silted in uh the ramp is usable as a put in for um kayaks that's that's not a problem but there are very few days of the year when the ramp is usable uh for um you know uh deeper water craft uh and even then on days when you can get out you got to be very careful that you time the tide so you can get back out so Going back to the business and the appraisal, it was not appraised as a marina. It was appraised as dry storage, right? Because it's not, it hasn't functioned in a long time as uh as a as a put-in for motorized boats. Mm -hmm. So and and that while we don't have firm plans for, you know, how we're going to eventually develop the property in the short term, our intention is to use it the way that it's been used, or at least the water access portion of it, the way that it's been used. Uh for a long time, which is as water access for car top, what's called car top boating, stand up paddle boards, kayaks, and and similar boats that can be launched in shallow shallow draft inputs. I would just add that 
it is a popular spot for folks to come down and launch kayaks and stand up paddle boards. I've spent a bit of time down there since we acquired the property, and I'm always surprised at how how frequently I see people uh, using it. One thing we are going to have to address is that the dock, I mean, the the the, the ramp is most usable as a put in for cart top boats with the help of a dock and the dock that's down there is you know is is it currently red tagged it's 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 tagged unsafe yeah so the dock is unsafe and again that wasn't part of the that wasn't an input into the appraisal well, it's actually on county property yeah. and that's on county that's on county property so another reason it wasn't considered yeah. in the appraisal so we are we are in the medium term gonna need to address either the either the rehab of that structure or more likely replacing it. Good, thank you. Um, I'm assuming there's no public comment. Uh, Mary, you have another? Yeah. Think you're not on. Uh, so aren't we saying we're gonna acquire this property because we want access to that boat ramp, but it's not a boat ramp that works for boats. And there's so few public boat ramps in Marin County that, I have a hard time supporting an acquisition of buying for a boat ramp for car for car tops when it, it's when we're acquiring this property as a for the use of the boat ramp. We're not acquiring it for the use of boat storage. We're acquiring it for the use of the boat ramp. So I don't quite get the justification in the purchase of this property. Yeah, I think what we heard from the local community was an interest in this site, mostly as a kayak launcher for shallow draft boats. But, um, and it, you know, it's been a community priority for that use for quite a long time. Um, and even the, the boat storage, you know, people weren't launching uh, deep water or deep boats there. Um, but, but I hear your concern. And I guess I would just clarify that it is, in fact, the boat ramp is, in fact, an access point to the water. So it's it's a it's a place where there is not um, there are no obstructions to the water. There's a concrete ramp that's in uh, good enough shape for folks to get to and access the bay, like they've been doing for you know decades and and do today. But isn't a boat ramp isn't the definition of a boat ramp to be able to launch boats, both car top and uh, uh, not all on trailers. Not all water access is by definition for motorized boats. I know I don't think that's a, a presumptive part of the definition of, of of water access facility. And one one important thing to note about this property and the regional planning supporting it is that the San Francisco, uh, I'm sorry, the the California Coastal Conservancy uh, sponsors the planning for the Bay Water Trail, mm -hmm. right? So the Bay Water Trail is a is a, you can't see it, but it's out there in the water, you know, circumnavigating the bay. And in the planning for the Bay Water, and the Bay Water Trail is actually primarily about um, paddlecraft. It's about non-motorized recreation, right? That's, that's what the, that's, that's, that's what's being facilitated and sponsored um, by the planning for a Bay Water Trail. And the Bucks Landing is actually specifically called out uh, as an opportunity site in the Coastal Conservancy's planning for the Bay Water Trail as an important priority uh, access point for the Bay Water Trail. And that, you know, the, the Coastal Conservancy actually funded partially the acquisition of the, you know, the named Bucks Landing property a couple of years ago for that reason. 
Okay, I won't Thank support the, the project uh, unless there's plans for improvement for real boats. Okay, that's noted. This is an information only item tonight. So, it may, may make yeah, and I think I would also add that besides the boat landing in the water access, the, the county and the public is getting uh, preservation of, of extremely high quality salt marsh and, and, um, one of the really outstanding uh, marshes that I'm talking about the China Camp and the, this particular property, which is adjacent to China Camp. Um, so I, I think this is a, a very important purchase from a natural history point of view, from a resource point of view. And I think we could look forward to the county's stewardship of that land to be significantly better than the current pri private um use which which has been in violation actually of any number of the protections for natural resources thank you so before i know we we're, we're we're short on time but i do just want to point to this last slide because it shows something really okay. cool okay. and that is that you know we started out measure a 1.0 with you know this 20 percent acquisition you know fund an acquisition program is funded at 20 percent that was projected to generate, you know, over $8 million of funding. And in the end, in the final result, generated closer to 9 million or even more. And we didn't have a certain plan. We had priorities going in. We didn't have a certain plan necessarily about how it was all going to get spent. And, you know, we were good at holding our powder and holding our fire through the first several years of Measure A. And then, you know, some people maybe had questions about whether or not we were going to be able to spend all that money. And we're here in front of you today uh, with this really cool slide that shows that following the allocation that's already been made for the Martha property and the presumptive allocation that, you know, might be made here shortly by the board in support of the Smith property acquisition, there will be a projected balance of $776 in the Measure A acquisition fund here at the very end of one term of Measure A and at the beginning of another as we start to accrue more funds. Greg, Carl, thank you for your for your comments. Uh, can you make a brief? I can make a brief. I just wanted to go back to the Martha property for a second, just for your amusement purposes. This property is currently listed with the local MLS uh, for $63 million. Uh, it shows a 624 Ridge Road, $63 million, two parcels of 110 acres. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank Greg, you, Greg. If you think the Bucks Landing looks a little funky now, you should have seen it in the mid 70s. <laughs> Very different. Yeah. Okay. We are now going to move on to item number seven project update on the proposed Stanford Lake asphalt pump track. And I just want to acknowledge uh, Al Bauman, who's a previous commissioner and was very involved in some of the creation out there. Yes. And so I'll introduce uh, Tara McIntyre, who is our principal landscape architect and the lead for our projects, park projects team and has been in the plan, leading our planning effort around this project. Yep. You're good. Oh, I see the red. So, and we'll get the presentation up in a second. Whoa. Oh, sounds like, yes. Oh, so. Um, I haven't sat at this table for a long time. Welcome, Tara. <laughs> it's nice to be, I, we had one, but. I feel very short right now. I need like one of those cushions to. Sure. 
feel free to stand if you want. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, like all you do is sit down. Oh, gosh. Can't see a darn thing. There all right. Go. There you go. I guess I'm going to have to get transitions because I look up and down here. All right. Oh, hey. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Hold on. How do I do this, Chris? Just the space bar. Hold on, advance. Space bar. It's in the presenter view. That's why it's weird. Yeah. Okay, space bar. Yeah. Is that the first one? Yeah. There we go. There you go. Okay. All right. And I don't need that. Okay. So you can hear me? Everybody can hear me? Good. Yes. All right. Well, good afternoon. Um, I will also make this brief, but this is an exciting little project update. Um, this is the Stafford Lake. See, it went forward. Stafford Lake Park all season track. And again, I'll restate my name. I'm Tara McIntyre. I'm the um, principal landscape architect for the projects and design team. And so today is just an, an update. We've been talking about this project for a pretty long time. Um, and we've been working on it and we've kind of hit the ground. Um, it, it's been a long time coming and we've made a lot of really good progress and just wanted to give you an update and show you where we're headed. So just for uh, a context location map, just so everybody knows where we're talking, we're talking about Stafford Lake Park um, and up in the north uh, of Novato in the North Marin Water District lands. Um, and so just again, for the folks listening in, uh, if you're not familiar, this is where we'll be discussing the project location. And before I get too far, we're gonna have a crash course on pump tracks because uh, not everybody knows what they are. I know a lot about them now, um, <laughs> uh, more than I ever thought. And uh, so let's talk first. So, so historically, these have been constructed of dirt and they've been around for quite a while. Uh, and this, the one that you see on the screen right now, that is our very own, one of our dirt pump tracks at the Stafford Lake Bike Park. Uh, they are comprised of soil. Usually sometimes they have additives to help stabilize the soil. Um, they vary in size, they vary in shape. Uh, a lot of creativity goes into them. This, as I said, this is part of a, the 17 acre bike park that we opened back in two, oh my gosh, dating myself, 2015, uh, with the uh, partnership of the Friends of Stafford Lake Bike Park, which is our the 501c3 nonprofit that helped uh, bring this park to life. And it has been wildly successful. And I say this because these pump tracks, the dirt pump tracks are just overflowing all the time. Now, the problem that we've run into is the challenges um, of maintaining them. And this track has been built, rebuilt twice already. And often when it does rain, it's closed down for weeks at a time as is the most the rest of the bike park. And so friends came and presented a new type of bike park that or pump track that would help kind of solve that issue. And that is an all season facility. So an all-season pump track, it's it's a essentially the same thing as what you just saw, but it's a asphalt surfacing. Um, the asphalt surface is desirable because it's flexible. It's a it's a great you know material. It's cost effective um, and it's long lasting. It's something that we can maintain. Um, and like a regular pump track, it has rollers. It, it operates the same functionally, 
but it has the, um, the benefit that it's open to a wide range of users. So it can be skateboards, it can be scooters, it can be wheelchairs. Um, it, it has, it just opens it beyond um, bikes, which is what primarily our dirt track is used by now. Um, so that, that's something that this, this track would uh, provide. Plus all season, it may rain a little bit, but um, unless we have a deluge, it's going to stay open. So that's, that's the exciting part about that, many exciting parts. And then this is an example, just a visual piece. There's rollers and berms. Um, and what, again, a little piece, just so you understand why is it called a pump track? It's a, it's, you pump your bike up and down or your skateboard or whatever, and you use velocity to, to um, get speed and you don't have to pedal. And it's fun, it's pretty neat to watch. Um, I invite you to look at some videos or uh, online. It's, they're pretty, they look, they look fun. Um, and I'm gonna show you a few public pump tracks, asphalt pump tracks that are built in uh, along the West Coast here in a second. But this is just a image that you can see right now of how these are built. They're built by hand. Um, they're, uh, this is the company uh, that has sort of brought these to life around the world. And, um, and then they create sculptures out of it. And they're, they're actually pretty interesting and really um, uh, alluring. So this is an example of a track. This one is in Arkansas. So sorry, one on the East Coast, but this is a, is a brand new facility, but it's a public project. Uh, this is in Leavenworth, Washington. And this was one my nephew called me up last summer and said, Aunt Tara, this place is awesome. And I knew, and this was already in one of my PowerPoints. So I was like, I know that track. Um, so he was really impressed. And then this is, this is one in Temecula, California. And this one I want to uh, lead into the next uh, series of slides because this project really re represents what we're going to be um, building because it is a facility. And so there's a, you can see a shade structure in there and you can see picnic tables and there's trees and there's a plaza for viewing. Uh, there's an accessible pathway uh, to get to the access to the track. So, and there's a parking lot. And so you'll see that as I take you through the next series of slides and I will speed up because I can feel my um, time because I get excited when I talk about these things. Uh, so the location map here in the upper left, you'll see along Nevada Boulevard, this has been used as our overflow parking in, in past. So it's been a pretty impacted site. Uh, and then another view here uh, from the bike park vantage. So you can see the bike park and then you can see the, um, the red star just so another view, and you can also see the pump tracks, sort of my cursor, it doesn't show up on the screen, so um, I'll move along, but that's just another view of the site. And importantly, with all of our projects, you know, we, this is so important um, that we're reaching out to our stakeholders and engaging the public, and this is, you know, Friends, of course, has been uh, a main, main stakeholder and engaging with us on this. The, um, the, the tribe, the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, um, the environment, excuse me, Environmental Roundtable uh, that I'm sure you're all familiar with, North Marin Water District, um, Dominic Grassi, who's our neighbor, and he actually has, has access across that parcel. And so he's, of course, because that's how he accesses his back pastures. And that was part of when we purchased the land very, very long ago, that was, um, there's a right of way across there. So he, of course, we've met with him many times and 
um, and having his input. And then also, of course, Novato Fire, making sure that we're compliant and, and that they're getting the needs uh, met for access. So a couple photos here on the, on the ground. This is in the back corner behind the residence, just looking towards Novato Boulevard. And here's another angle, just panning to the right a little bit more. So you can see the, the Ranger residence on the right. So it's a pretty level site, um, which these tracks are, need to be level. Uh, it slopes relatively of, um, a little bit, like I think it's about an average of 6% across that entire site. And so, so it's very, very amenable to this, this type of facility. Um, Oh, I flipped over. And so kind of go back to what that's, that slide I said to keep in mind the facility, the site elements. So we'll have a shade structure, there's a parking lot. Um, one of the things that's really exciting about this is we're going to be planting a lot of trees and we're gonna be planting native trees. And one of the things that's uh, we're trying to do with this is use it a little bit of a testing ground to try a wider range of, of native oaks and they aren't necessarily native to this area, but to California, larger California, and, and trying to see as predict, you know, getting ahead of climate change and rising temperatures, hotter summers, are there better oaks or a wider range of oaks um, that we can integrate that will be more adapted to a hotter summer and climate. So we're kind of, we're really excited about that. Um, and of course, with any public project, we are integrating uh, accessible access. So that um, and and the other part is stormwater, which I can talk about as I show you more slides here. So one of the initial concepts, so I'll, I'll go through these quickly because our just I just wanted to show you the progression of how we develop, you know the it's it's a it's an iterative process. Uh, this was our initial concept. This was actually the concept that we submitted to apply for a grant, which I can talk about, I will talk about later. Um, so this, again, just breaks down the initial sort of figuring out how is it going to sit on the site. Very, very, very loose uh, uh, design here. And you'll see there's one track. Now, this track is going to change here as we go through because we realized the when we looked at our pump track, pump tracks, we have a kid's track and we have a, a larger track. And it really is, it works really well. So the kids cannot feel like they're going to get run over and it. Um, uh, so we felt that that was really important. We were also did, uh, you know, grading studies to make sure how would this work? How is the parking going to flow? How's the fire going to come in? Um, and then we kind of landed here where we split the track. We have a central viewing area. We're still tweaking the, the parking. Uh, and, and then we pulled the track apart and like you just saw and reworked the track. So again, keep, keep, pushing it, massaging the site and making sure like we're trying to balance cut and fill and overall site. And then thinking about user access, how are people gonna interact in this site? I mean, these are this is a gathering place. If you've ever been to the bike park and I highly recommend going there on a weekend, especially in the summer or on a nice fall day, it is a Mecca. I mean, people are like hanging under the shade structure and they're picnicking and they're ch chatting and all the parents have coffees and the kids are zipping around on bikes. Um, and so that viewing central area, that heart of this facility was really important too. And how does that um, interact with the rest of the, the elements? And then here we landed, this was our final kind of concept where 
we're integrating the trees, trying to make a screen between Nevada Boulevard. Um, it's a little looser now. We've sort of made it look a little more natural and I'm sure we'll do more adjusting in the future when, when the plantings do go in, uh, but shade is important out there and, and, and oaks and trying to put in more native, native trees is really uh, critical as well. So as design development, I've pulled off all the trees so you can see the grading and the central plaza. We have a one-way uh, parking lot that you come in one way and you come back out. Uh, we've also done our grading and cut and fill analysis. So we have an entire team of landscape architects, civil engineers, geotechnical engineers, and trying to make sure we're balancing that cut and fill um, as much as we can. And actually additional fill will be used on site because we have a bike park that's in always in need of dirt. If I hear one person say we need more dirt, I'm, I'd be, I could retire. It's, um, they, it, it's always in need. Uh, and so here we are, this is the design development plan where this is 30% and we're about to go into 75%. And so you can see there's a pump track on the left. And that, the, so again, we're really into the details of it. We have a shade structure. Uh, there's a couple, you know, there's benches, there's a drinking fountain. There is a restroom area, so portables. And we have our ADA parking spaces. And, uh, and we're trying to make sure we're accommodating enough space to have pop-up tents for events. Um, just really trying to think about the all the little pieces. Um, the funding sources, this is a, a Measure A funded source uh, project, but also we've received, a, we applied and we've been accepted for a grant. It's a 400, this is where Kevin would remind me, uh, a $460,000 grant from, uh, it's a per capita grant from Proposition 68. So that's really exciting. And, and also friends of Stafford Lake White Park are, are bringing to the table funding and, and raising money and, and for with donors and sponsorships. So um, we're still in that realm. Um, this slide was supposed to be in the beginning and I, I um, somehow slid down, but just also make sure that, uh, you know, we've, we've done site surveys on this. We've had our biological assessments performed on this. We are you know, our uh, cultural site assessments. We've had geotechnical site uh, work and we're in the midst of preparing our CEQA documents. And also this will be part of a master plan amendment, which all of that will happen together once uh, probably, probably winter, I would say early winter, but we'll be back to discuss this with you. Um, and then just the schedule next steps. So 75% construction plans is what we're working on right now. Uh, and then we hope to have 100% by early winter and then public bidding, hopefully early, late winter, early spring, because our construction would be in July, late summer. And we wanna make sure that we get really good bids and good contractors. It's always good to get early so you can get on their schedules ahead of time instead of late. And then you just don't know who you're going to get. So that, is the, the, the super fast presentation and would love to have any questions you might have. Thank you, let me bring it up. So thank you, Sarah. This, it sounds like a terrific um, recreational project. Um, on the landscaping though, I, I would ask, 
that you might want to consider. And I, I, think, I think we've discussed this at other parts mm -hmm. of um, that, that facility to try to have a vision of trying to recreate the historical landscape mm. and using these the historically present species. Um, I, I, to me, a native plant is a, a plant that's native to that area. I think most environmentalists would look at it that way. Um, so if we were to bring in, you know, a Tory pine or some sort of more southern pine, excuse me, um, uh, oaks you were talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, more southern, southern oaks, I don't, I would not consider that native planting. I would mm -hmm. consider that exotics. But um, I, I think this is, there's a great opportunity for the parks and every time we do um, a landscaping to try to create and preserve and enhance the native landscape and with na with native species. So I, I would just urge you to kind of think about that, not just conceptually as well as practically. Oh, absolutely. And, and I can tell you from the oak uh, plant list, it's, it's the majority of them are local native, like blue oaks and live oaks and valley oaks. Um, and we were just hoping to integrate a couple different types to see how how they do, just to broaden our plant palette too. So, but thank you. The monitor's like right in. I know, I'm listening I know, the whole like, time. Hey. <laughs> uh, what's the total cost of the project and how much of that is measure aid funds? So we're still working on the, the, the we're getting actually the plans out to cost estimate right now, but roughly our ballpark around 2 million for the total build out. And you, you, you've mentioned several times that this saves, you know, the, you're asked to, we need more dirt, we need more dirt. Why are you not building this in the location of the existing site in order to save maintenance and ex expense on the dirt track? It's, it's a different type of facility. And I think the fact the bike park is the bike park and it's for bikes and, and the, the, and the riding is it's, it's a different experience. Um, and so I think if we took that away, people would probably not be very excited about that. And the fact that we have a separate, plus the bike park, everything gets shut down in the winter. And so it just feels like we could shut that down and be able to open, keep the pump track, the asphalt, it's in a different location in the park and that can kind of operate on its own while our staff is able to address maintenance and and it's it's loved. I mean, that bike, yeah. the original bike park is loved and those dirt pump tracks still have a place. It's not a and or, it's a both type of thing. Okay. Thank you. Sure. A couple of quick questions. First of all, I share Commissioner Harris's enthusiasm for the project. It's it, it just looks like a whole lot of fun. And so you and the other folks who worked on it should be commended and congratulated. This is really a good project. Uh, just a couple of technical sure. questions. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> um, what is, are the tracks one way? Yes. So it'll be signed that you can only go one way around it. Yeah, and 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 from my understanding is is people and what we've seen at the bike park too on the pump tracks. You know, people they it's 
there's never one person on it. There's always, and, and people kind of police each other and help each other out. And, and you can, um, but typically it's a, it's a one way. Okay. Cause it, leads, it would lead to my second question, which is liability. Um, if people are on it and they're injured for some reason, is the, is the, county in any way liable or do they sign stuff waiving liability or it's it falls under the same uh and i can't remember the statute but there's a statute that it's the same that the bike park um falls under where it's it's worse do you, do you remember? it's essentially like as long as we yeah, don't charge the for the yeah. specific facility and there's nobody like monitoring it like a lifeguard or something like that then there's a broad exemption for liability for uh you know, entity, public entities to operate parks with like skate parks and trails mm -hmm. and bike parks and some like all those things uh, because they're potentially dangerous activities. It, no one would operate. A sign to that effect would be posted there so people would we, know. No. It. Well, we do. So so when you go to the bike park um, on our main sign, there is a there's absolutely a, a, a note to that reference okay. to that. And, right. and we'll have a similar sign. Okay, there. But we're not required to sign it for that. Or to be, you know, under that. Oh yeah, it's just it's an inform it's an informative piece where it's just okay. part of our language. The last question I have is when this is up and running, um, I would assume that there'll be a high demand for it. A lot for a lot of kids or younger adults, it'll be word of mouth. Is there a have you, have you thought of a way to publicize it to other parts of the county so that people know it's available? Well, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. I think once we once we put it out to bid, and it feels like you know that that's when to me it's real. Um, once once that is sort of the you know we're in that realm, I'm sure you know between friends and our amazing communications team, we will start uh, getting people really excited. But I I don't think it will be hard to get the word out. Fill it up. Yeah, okay. the Again, social network has already happened. <laughs> All right. Well, again, congratulations. It's really a good project. Thank you. Oh, a quick question. Yes. Uh, I'm curious about the, you, you already heard that's going to be like a free, no fee for the usage, right? That's, that's what you are well, thinking about this. There's no additional fee for using this besides the entrance to the park. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I'm curious about how, how it's going to work with the wheelchairs. Are there going to be rules about, uh, I mean, wheelchairs and the bikes and the kids with the skate yeah it's a that's a good question and and it's something that from um i mean our our laney davidson our accessibility coordinator here at the county she's well aware of this project and we've been talking about it and and i'll absolutely ask her input about that that detail because the the consultants that um are the expertise and have built these projects have, you know, they have not voiced that that's an issue. It's just sort of, but that's a great, we'll look into that. No, it's like, how do you message that? Yeah. Because I think it's, it's, you know, it's not a universally accessible, but of course there are people who, if you're, if you are able to get down in there and we make it accessible right up to it, absolutely. And I, and the tracks, like some of the tracks I showed you are the, like the the smaller track on the kids side is much much shallower rollers, so it's a little more um, a little less mountainous. Um, but yeah, we'll I will absolutely talk to Laney about that and how we might be able to message that or clarify that just so folks know. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Outstanding presentation. Thank you. I've been out there on a Sunday uh, with uh, good weather. Yeah. It's amazing how many people are using this already out there. Yeah. Um, is there any uh, surveys yet that shows how many people are Marin County residents using it versus out of county? Yeah. So we did when we did a visitor study, you know, that was one of the, the sites that we monitored. That was several years ago, probably five or six years ago at this point. Um, and so we got some data on there. I, I can't remember off the top of my head okay. what it what it was, but it's yeah. We can point that out. Yeah, and I I just again I know Tara mentioned it too, but appreciation to Al and to the whole friends of yeah. Stafford Lake Bike Park because you know thinking about you know what type of facilities we should be building and how to publicize it and also just like how to connect with that community, and make sure we're building the right thing. I feel like you know we really rely on their expertise and their connection to the users to um, to understand that. And one other question I have with our community grants, we've actually funded a number of nonprofit agencies that specialize in helping kids with bikes. Mm -hmm. Has there been any thought of maybe devoting a, a day out there for maybe the, all the kids in in the canal area? They're involved in some of those nonprofits to come out and use it. We can provide some transportation. Our grantees have definitely, we've supported them to help have events at the bike park, specifically to ride out there, you know, okay. trips for kids and others, providing bikes, providing transportation. And we, I love the idea of doing more and more of that. It's great. Yeah, I, yeah, it would be great. I feel like this is the track of dreams. If we build it, they will come and- well, Boy, did they ever come with the bike park. So I, yeah, I don't. And are you also yeah. looking at the possibility of being able to rent it out for competition? Not, I don't think it's we've gotten that the, far the yet. The funny thing about <laughs> yeah. when we built the bike park is that, you know, it was partially paid for by, um, you know, from private sources that, right. that mm -hmm. put forward money to sponsor different components of it. And part of what they got out of it was the ability to hold events there. But I don't know, Al, there's been like almost no events. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the reality is it's just full of people yeah. on their weekend or just afternoons having fun with their family and friends. And so that's awesome. And, and, and I don't think we've ever closed. I, I know we've had events because we have dual solemn races and we'd have like a weekly kind of like a, um, a weekly ski league, but weekly bike league, uh, dual solemn races. And they just kind of happens at the same time. And it's more like local events, yeah. smaller local yeah. events. Did you have a scrimming invitational tournament? Absolutely. <laughs> we'll sign you up, Bruce. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Dennis, you want to? Okay. Thank you. Okay. And I want to open it up to public comment. Al, I'm sure you have something to say. <laughs> I always seem to have something to say. Uh, I'm Al Bauman, and I'm on the board of Friends of Stafford Lake Bike Park. Uh, first, I want to thank the staff here because somehow I don't know how they did it, but they managed to keep the park open uh, in a time of COVID and in a time of uh, problems with enough help out there um, to really keep it as clean, as nice as, uh, as we like to have it. Last couple of years have been a little tough. And uh, most important thing, of course, to this project is that Tara and the rest of the parks department kept this project going through about two years of when it was pretty tough to allocate time for it. Um, we're, we're a public-private partnership with parks and I can tell you it's innovative and it's been really exciting and really pleasurable for us. We've had a, a part in the planning of all this as well as the pleasure of bringing in some money. 
um, during the downtime, for example, uh, Frenza was able to sponsor some of the maintenance stuff that um, and outsource it. Um, and also we were able to help a lot with the facts finding uh, uh, for uh, bicycling groups about measure A. Um, we have committed funds already for this project over the time in the last two years when uh, it's been in a rather slow progress. Uh, we've had donors come and uh, give us uh, almost $100,000 dedicated particularly to uh, the BMX pump track. And I think that we're not going to have any trouble with contributing greatly to this, the rest of the process. Uh, we have $125,000 uh, matching grant waiting for our, our campaign. And the sponsor of this grant has uh, kept it uh, alive for this two week period or two year period, excuse me, uh, while we were uh, getting ready to build. Um, I think one of the most important things to me was my dream of seeing the Trips for Kids bus come up to that bike, bike park. Mm -hmm. And not just Trips for Kids, but YMCAs and other nonprofit groups that benefit kids have, uh, have come there. You'll see them pull in, you'll see them park, you'll see them unload those kids. We even have some bikes for the ones that don't have it. It's been great. And it's only gonna be greater with this track because this track has a, a, a diverse number of uses users that we can't satisfy any other way, as Tar was saying, um, with uh, the scooters and uh, the rollerbladers and the straight, straight bladers and uh, all other things that have some wheels on it but don't have any motors. Um, I would like to just mention a couple of things because of the great questions that you asked. Um, there's certainly the possibility of management of users as this thing becomes popular. You can give time periods for certain users. You could advertise what time or day of the week when they'd be able to use it. So if we find there's conflict, um, I think that um, management will uh, not be a problem for us. Um, also, um, uh, the change of the location uh, was uh, great. And the reasons are not just the ones that Tara cited, but there are wetlands on the other side of the hill across from the park where initially we thought we might have a great location for it. And this site is uh, much easier, much less movement of dirt, disturbance of the surface of the dirt, and um, there are no wetlands on that side. So I think that was really a good idea. As far as competitions go, uh, we've had dual slalom competitions. We have um, cross-country competitions that involve the park and um, I'm not supposed to say this, I don't think, but this is an international uh, facility that is creating competitions all over the world. And we have tried to make this, if we should decide to have those things, uh, good enough for the qualification for these international events. There are championships uh, from where participants from all, from all nations come. So it has possibilities for that if we decide to do it. Um, I think that's all I have to say, unless you guys have some questions for me and Gal have some questions for me. Was Grayton one of the, I was surprised to see them at the round table. Were they one of the donors? Uh, we haven't asked them uh, to be donors. Um, I'll have Tara uh, describe their role a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to it. I, I mean, I think, the, for any of our work that has potential of ground disturbance, the um, cultural, having the, the tribes engaged around cultural resources is really key. So 
that's I think that's why they were mentioned on the list is that um, we have you know a deep engagement with the tribe and and on this project we've had engagement with them. Okay. Seeing no other questions, Al. Thank you for all your involvement since the very beginning with thank this. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Chair Scarman, right. are you able to hear me? On, we're now going to hear about Roy's red dots. Okay, so our next presentation, and I appreciate that we have a lot of very in-depth presentations. So thank you for your attention. Um, this is uh, John Campo, uh, uh, who's going to present about our Roy's Redwoods project. And uh, I think you may have received a project or a presentation early on. It's but... been a, it's been a few years okay. actually since we've talked about this. We are just almost to the point to uh, releasing the CEQA document for this project. So we thought this was a really important opportunity to bring it back to your commission. Right, thanks, Max. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Um, yeah, like Max said, this has been a few years since we've talked about this exciting legacy project. Um, actually, I gotta plug my kids. Those are my girls on the tree. They're bigger now. <laughs> um, it's been a couple of years. So just to refresh and regroup, uh, we're talking about Roy's Redwoods, um, and we're talking specifically about this area right here um, in the old growth Redwood Grove and Larson Creek. Um, Roy's is one of only four old growth Redwood Groves in Marin County. That's very exciting. Um, and we've established a, a great project team, obviously Marin County Parks and Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy. And together we are one TAM, and so this is a one TAM project. And we're also working with some some great local consultants, Pronsky Chatham and Restoration Design Group have been instrumental in helping. Um, we've been working at this project for quite a few years. Um, I started actually in working for the county right around when when this started in 2016. And this was first identified as a one TAM project at that point. The next few years, we took a lot of time to spend with the community, um, holding site visits and um, discussions and public meetings to, to really get a sense of what the goals of the community and the scope of the project would be. The next couple of years, we've worked on the design and refinement. And now finally, we're in the development of the environmental review or CEQA. A little delay on the um okay and so working on the the site analysis of of roy's really you know we we really engaged the community quite a bit we had several public meetings um we had several site visits and and we learned a lot about the site um northern spotted owls obviously one critter that lives there our agency has been studying this animal for over 20 years in marin so we have data going back over 20 years, the owls here. Um, we looked closely at the hydrology, uh, Roy's Redwoods and Larson Creek and how that transports sediment downstream to San Geronimo Creek and <coughs> Lagunitas Creek, which is an important coho stream. So this is a big part of our assessment was understanding the hydrology. We also looked at the social trails and I think we've talked about this in this project and other projects, whereas this site, really never had an established network of trails. And as a result, we have a, a spaghetti network of social trails that cover the whole site. And those pink areas are 
identified as heavily compacted disturbed areas. And so this is not ideal for us. Um, we would rather have a much more legible, um, sustainable system. We, we took a time to do a visitor use survey and understand why people go to Roy's Redwoods and not, no big surprise, they go there to see the redwood trees. Um, so that's a big, <laughs> big and obvious point. Um, but there were other reasons too, but this, this provided additional information as to where are they going specifically? How are they getting there? What are they doing? That kind of thing. So it was, it was really valuable. And again, more side visits, more group discussions. Um, we talked about this um, quite a bit, which was great because then we learned about the project goals um, and established project goals with the community. And so I'll, I'll talk through these. Um, the first goal being restoring and enhancing the hydrologic process and function. So that's a, that's a lot of jargon and fancy way of saying slow the water down. Um, and so there's a book that recently came out called Water Always Wins. And it's really interesting. And she coins the term, um, the slow water movement, which I really like, kind of like the slow food movement, but it's slow water and all the benefits of slow water. And so that's, you, this is Larson Creek here in this photo. And it's in the winter time, if you've been ever been to Roy's, the water goes through that um, grove pretty quickly. That's not ideal. We really want to slow that water down. So a big part of this would be um, restoring that hydrology. And this is a this is a really neat image I found. This image is using beavers to describe that slow water um, and implement slow water. We wouldn't be using beavers at Roy's Redwoods, but it's the same idea. So beavers in this image, um, they're building dams, right? And slowing that water down and reconnecting the creek channel to the floodplain. And that's kind of a newer concept that's come into play and it's a really important one. So if the image on the left is the creek that's disconnected from the floodplain. And as you move over to the right, it's reconnected to the floodplain. And what that does is it raises the water table. Um, it provides water for the plants. And in this case, the redwood trees on site keeps the water, the water table higher and um, more opportunities to provide resiliency for the redwood forest. So we're not using beavers here, um, but we'll use logs. And so here in this photo, you can see logs that are strategically placed to slow that water down and create pools. And so that, that's how we're gonna slow it, spread it, sink it, right? That's probably a term most people have heard. Um, so another goal is enhancing the redwood forest. Um, so again, we have this social trail network. That's not ideal. Um, what we'll end up doing is coming through, you can see in this photo, a lot of um, compacted soil, no riparian vegetation. Um, the water just kind of sheets off it. So we'll actually go in and decompact those soils and break up those soils. Um, and then instead of that social trail network, we'll provide a very legible system trail network. And so this is the proposed plan right now. Um, it's going from about 2.4 miles of trails to about 1.4 miles of trails. But in this case, these trails will be clearly marked and identified and accessible. And so this is kind of re representation of an ideal situation where the trail is identifiable and the surrounding area is kind of that moist forest floor that's, that's holding water and storing water. 
And to, to help with that goal, we'll implement a revegetation plan. And so um, we've recently reactivated our nursery. It was dormant for some time with COVID. Um, and the, our, our local native nursery is going to be a big part of this revegetation. And you're actually going to hear a presentation about this from Asia um, just following me. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But it's been very exciting to have that nursery. And then when we grow those plants in our native nursery, we'll then work with the community in the valley in the, in the school district to go ahead and develop a stewardship plan and plant the plants out. And then also talk to the kids and have them become stewards to educate people about why it's important to stay on the trails and, and revegetating that forest floor. And so another goal is developing the access and discovery trail. And so I, again, I think we've talked about this one. Um, this is our inclusive access plan. This was a, a board adopted plan in 2016. And it's, uh, Roy's was, was one of the, the few, there were seven open spaces that were identified as um, putting forth this idea of having a inclusive access trail. And so, a, you know, that trail would be um, accessible for wheelchairs. And it would look, you know, these are kind of representations of what th that trail would be. If you had some kind of mobility impairment, you used a cane. Um, if you had a, a young child with a stroller, you would be able to access these trails and they would be um, more comfortable and they would meet the criteria of grades and, and whatnot. Not all of the trails would meet this criteria. So in this map, the green one and the pink ones, those would be part of this inclusive access. The, the tan ones would be more primitive, but they would be very comfortable. They wouldn't be steep um, and they would be for hiking only. So actually I should mention, the pink one and the tan ones are hiking, hiking only. And the green one is hiking and equestrian, which it currently is today. So this, that's part of the Royce loop that is popular with equestrians. No bikes, no. Um, so here's a pretty watercolor of what our boardwalk loop trail would look like, the representation. And again, the features, you can see those logs kind of scattered around. So not only would the boardwalk provide access, but it would also be part of that slow water movement and slowing the water down. And, and this is a, um, if you're familiar with Roy's, this is kind of a blow up of the entrance. So you can see Nicasio Valley Road. Um, we wouldn't change a lot at the parking interface. Um, we would add one ADA parking spot. And so that's the blue car at the bottom of the screen, the left of the screen. So there's one ADA parking spot. And then that access by that blue car would be um, inclusive access. So that would be a very comfortable access point if you were in a wheelchair. Um, we would also make the middle access um, accessible. Right now, there's no access point there. There's kind of logs that tell people don't cross here, but everybody does because they want to get off the road which is a fair point. It's a fast, it's a road with fast moving traffic. We want people to get off the road quickly. So we're gonna add that access in the middle. And then the top, the access on the top of the screen would also be um, wheelchair accessible as well. Um, so here's a, another watercolor. So the, the, the image on the left is that middle access point I was talking about with the hiker looking at the sign says, don't cross these logs that everybody does. 
and on the right would be stairs that we would put in that place. Again, we just want to get people off that road as quick as possible. We would also move the porta toilet, which is in the floodplain right now. We would move that out of the floodplain, and that would also become accessible for ADA. And, and finally, this was a theme throughout our community discussions was we want to keep Roy's Roy's. We don't necessarily want a new mirror woods. Uh, we want to have a, an interactive experience with the site. Um, and so again, this was informed a lot by our visitor use survey and those discussions. But this log is a good example of that. So this is a tree that's fallen over in Roy's. It's commonly used as a trail. And so we included that as part of the trail. And so in that that red circle, that's that fallen tree. And so if you wanted a more adventurous route, you could go across, you could hike across that log and then connect to the trail that way. You don't have to, but that's that's an option because we heard from the community they wanted to maintain that type of experience. We also heard um, there has been a long history of outdoor education at Roy's. And so in the middle of Roy's in this red circle, we created a nature exploration area, or we would. And so this giant log is out there today. And so we've used that to frame this nature exploration area. So if we had um, the elementary school wanted to have a classroom experience and they could play with sticks and, and have a group setting, they could do that here and that would be a permitted event. We, we don't necessarily want fort building throughout the preserve. We, we wanna provide that opportunity, but we do want the sticks to kind of, you know, lie where they lay, so to speak. And finally, um, during this process, we've been salvaging redwood trees. We've got some great leads from you folks, um, and we've got some beautiful redwood redwoods in the process from PG&E or flood control. In fact, there's some trees around this campus that I think are going to come out. We're going to make sure we get those so we can repurpose them as part of Roy's. And and finally, just to um, talk about next steps a little bit. And throughout this process, we've been working on identifying implementation funding. And so, so far we have $500,000 committed from our ADA um, program, our county program, to help pay for the implementation. We have philanthropic support from one TAM, uh, Measure A, of course. And then most excitedly, we just received a 1.5 million grant from state parks um, specifically for this project, which is huge. That fills a the, the biggest gap, obviously. Um, our next steps are we're, we're finalizing our, our draft for the environmental review. I hope to have that out to the public the end of this year. And then at that point, we would have a, another comment period, receive more comments, and then uh, respond to comments and go from there. Um, if the project was approved, we would then apply for regulatory permits um, and then implement the project next summer 2023 so i think that's it thank you yeah thank you back to the commissioners roger oh john all all great um retiring social trails at, by creating more user-friendly usable system trails is just um the formula that we need to do i hope we do you know we have the resources to do it everywhere but this is a really great place to do it. 
Um, just one question, and that is, uh, it went a little fast, uh, maybe I missed it, but there's the ADA parking spot on, on the highway. Um, was there any sort of may maybe having it closer to the toilet um, so that it's a little bit more convenient for people with, with disabilities to, to get to the toilet? It, yeah, that's a that's a good comment, and I'm going to look into that. I'm not I because I don't remember off the top of my head if there was a reason why it had to go there. I I want to say there are certain requirements we need for width uh, and roadway width, and I think where it was located, it it kind of had to go there, and it couldn't go closer to the toilet. But I want to confirm that. So that's a good question. I'm I'm from that demographic and. Um, I, can, I can tell you that there'll be a lot of people self serving appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the moving the port of toilet, the port of toilet now is not a very attractive one, but if, if you need it, it's, it's, it's there, um, but it would be great to move it out of that floodplain. Okay. Any other comments? If, if you use this presentation in the future on, on where the toilets are, you might want to say improved and removed portable toilet rather than potable, which oh, is what uh, it does says. it say that? Yeah, it says potable <laughs> toilet, which is frankly a turnoff for me. Maybe okay. Commissioner <laughs> Harris thinks it's okay. Okay, good. That's a good one. Thanks for catching that. <laughs> it's organic. <laughs> Seeing no more questions, comments. Anyone in the public? Seeing none. Thank you, John. Thank you. Excellent presentation. We're now going to move to item nine, the native plant nursery program overview. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, so as John mentioned, this program is really exciting and it's become really popular with uh, our community partners. So I wanted to introduce uh, Asia Matthews, who's here to present and has been sort of coordinating the work out there. I'll turn it over to Asia. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Yeah, my name is Asia. I'm the nursery technician with the parks. Um, started this February, and I'm going to be talking about community-centered restoration. Um, I wanted to start out with a quotation just to kind of ground into the ethos and the big picture, I think, of what doing restoration and growing these plants means to me. Um, this is a quotation from Dr. Robin Walkimmer, and she says, restoration is imperative for healing the earth, but reciprocity is imperative for long-lasting, successful restoration. Like other mindful practices, ecological restoration can be viewed as an act of reciprocity in which humans exercise their caregiving responsibility for the ecosystems that sustain them. And that's just something I like to carry with me when I'm working with volunteers and when I'm doing this work in general. Um, and it really, you know, kind of threads the work that we do. So when I think about the native plant nursery, um, I think about it in the center of this beautiful trillium. Um, no, I actually think about it sort of at the center of this Venn diagram um, with ecological restoration, aesthetic landscaping, and community outreach and engagement as sort of the three branches um, or three areas that we're able to really mesh together in the work that we do. Um, and of course, these uh, areas are, you know, part of the goals and the needs that have been outlined in things like the strategic plan and the vegetation and biodiversity management plan for the county. So, um, you know, needs on the human scale to have uh, opportunities to di engage diverse demographics and an aging population, as well as, you know, the ecological concerns of uh, watershed health and biodiversity habitat improvements. And at the nursery, we're really able to do a lot of that. We can 
invite a lot of different types of people into the space. Um, and, and also our, all the work that we're doing is furthering those goals of um, improving habitat. So where actually is the nursery? It's been dormant for a few years, as John mentioned. So now where do we find it? This is a little uh, inset here of Lagoon Park in the Civic Center. And there's the Lagoon Park office in a close-up. And we're kind of tucked right behind it. That's the shade house where all the plants are currently growing. And there's the greenhouse. Um, and so if you haven't been there, it looks like it's kind of tucked away there, but when you actually get in the space, it's quite expansive, it's quite beautiful, and it's a lovely um, kind of a classroom at this point. And I encourage you all to come back there um, and check it out for yourself if you haven't been, um, it's quite vibrant. So uh, a little timeline of where, where we've been and where we're going. Um, the nursery was constructed in the last five years. So it's a new project for the county in general. Um, and even during that time, it was undergoing ADA renovations and there was some intermittent staffing. So it didn't really find its feet. It hasn't found its feet pretty much until this year. You know, COVID was, of course, it was lying dormant during that time. So this is the first full, I feel like full growing season that we've had that we're really kicking things off. And I feel super grateful that I've been um, at the helm of bringing it back to life. And I'm really excited to be looking into the future on how we can expand the projects and the program development. Um, just a little snapshot of what it looked like when I arrived in February, that's the inside of the shade house and what it looks like right now. So total transformation. Um, and uh, many things actually have in, improved on the site as well. This was an Eagle Scout project that occurred before my time. They made this cool structure, but it got a major facelift this year. I'm really grateful to have made that request to folks and then they followed through with um, some funding to get that um, squared up and now it's all holding all of our um, clean pots so that's like revolutionized the workflow at the nursery and made things really phytosanitary um, which is super important. These shade sales are also a huge asset because this, the site does get quite hot and so we've had tons of work days underneath very pleasant, of course our pollinator beds. Um, just buzzing with with bees and you can't quite tell but there is actually a little splotch of, of orange in there right on the milkweed there's like constantly butterflies uh, monarchs just buzzing all around this patch and um, the Marin monarch working group has come to check them out and it's really sweet to kind of go on a caterpillar hunt in that patch. Um, and there's still more to come, you know, I want I really want to flesh this space out um, and there's a an unused little bit of land against the fence there that we've sheet mulched and I am in, inspired to make it into a like a demonstration garden that will make this place really like more of a living lab so I drew up a little landscape design with the help of volunteers we're going to install this within the next month. Um, and that will really I think provide not only an aesthetic experience more more than it already is but a chance to look at plant phenology, to do seed collection on site with groups that come and make the space even um, a nicer classroom than it is now. So the nursery work itself is um, actually, ideally um, when project managers want plants for their um, restoration projects, they you know, would alert me at least to 24, 18 to 24 months in advance because it's, um, we have a, a, a stockpile of seeds at the nursery already from years past of collecting, but we're not always guaranteed to have the right seed for the right species in that watershed if we're doing a, a site-specific planting. Um, so ideally you get that, you know, information early on and then you can collect seed, right? And in California, we have different cycles of seed and it really is kind of a year-round activity. You know, Toyon is called Christmas berry because it's ripe in Christmas. It is also red like holly, but, um, and there's all sorts of activities that we do, um, 
you know, to get ready for, for the height of production season in the winter time. Transplanting, um, of course, is a big one and cuttings that also happen best in the kind of quieter and colder months. So this year we've been out collecting seed. This is where it all begins, right? Out in the field. Um, I've led a number of seed collecting activities, which is just super fun. And for me, it's really like the, one of my favorite ways to inter interact with the landscape. Um, it's very sensory rich. You're out there, you're touching the stuff of restoration and then you bring it back, you process the seed, you clean it and you store it um, in the fridge. And it can last for up to 10 years. Some of the seeds I was sowing in the beginning of the season were 12 years old and they germinated well, so it's fantastic. Um, certain species have different, you know, needs to, to break their dormancy, like stratification, make them cold and wet, and then these little radicals, little roots emerge, um, and then you can sow them into flats. And um, this is our greenhouse sort of late June, uh, chock full of different flats of different species. Um, and of course, once two true leaves uh, emerge, if they're a die cut, then you pot them up. Um, and that's the shade house right now. And of course, all those plants, I mean, four fifths of them probably have been potted by volunteers. And so lots of lots of loving hands on those plants. Um, and this is a really striking photo. You can't quite tell the diversity of all the different species that we have in there. So again, I encourage you come on down and see it for yourself. It's really lovely to be in there. And each, you know, part of this shade house is organized by projects. We have the Tiburon Peninsula, we have, you know, Mount Burdell area, and it's cool to just walk amongst the plants and kind of get a feel, a little, you know, micro feel for how the ecology of the place is represented in the plants. Now, once the plants are mature and pruned, ideally, once they are outplanted, and this will occur, you know, October through January. It's rain dependent, you know, nature's irrigation and also dependent on um, if it is a volunteer event, you know, getting the folks out. Um, that is also, you know, a point to make here that the nursery kind of is able to bridge the gap a little bit between the, the open space preserves and the parks because we are growing for both. Um, and those sites will depend, like the follow-up on those sites is really site dependent. So like old St. Hillary's, this picture, example, for example, you're down this sl steep slope, um, following up with irrigation if the rain is spotty and maintenance is kind of going to be difficult. And here at Hal Brown Park, you know, very accessible. Kirk's been working on this beautiful hedgerow for a decade plus. That's a much easier site to make sure that it's successful. So I have some questions in my mind, um, thinking about how best to use our resources as um, a nursery manager, so we can be sure that the plants that we're growing are getting outplanted in a place where they can be, you know, maintained and that there's not too much attrition. Um, but for folks that can't go out into the field to participate in outplanting activities, the nursery is this awesome, really unique um, place to provide engagement, public engagement. You know, we're ADA accessible, we're accessible by, by uh, via public transit. We can do tasks, you know, for many abilities levels. We can be sitting down while we're doing the work if we need to. Um, and I just think that's kind of a niche within our park system that it hasn't been filled is how do we engage folks that want to do restoration? They want to touch plants, you know, um, this is a perfect spot for that. So we've been, I've been developing a program this year with a number of different partners. Um, Autistry Studios is a folk, uh, folks uh, with autism who are learning job skills. They've been coming in. The Marin Master Gardeners, of course, are my stalwart, um, super dedicated volunteers. And also sort of probing out into the community and other places that um, part where future partnerships can take hold. You know, um, since this is the first year of the program, I feel like we have this, we have tons of interested parties and 
we have, um, you know, the capacity to provide programs. There's plenty of work to do. And, you know, the more the resources, if we're able to put resources into this program, we can be providing that continuous engagement into the future and creating these deeper relationships. So this year so far, uh, since mid-April, when I started hosting groups, we've had, you know, 24 volunteer events, which means one event every week. Um, except for one week where we had two events and you know, it's like 400 person hours, um, lots of volunteers, you know, 10,000 pots washed to 6,000 plants, a lot, a lot, a lot of, um, work being done really fun. Um, and I just like am bowled over by the, the volunteers who have been coming out. So thank them so much, so much for all the hard work. And yeah, I definitely could not have done it myself and I'm excited to see where it goes. You know, folks are really jazzed about it and, um, that's really exciting. And we'll, we'll be continuing through, through the end of my season. Um, yeah, without slowing down next week, we actually have two, two groups coming out as well. And I'm still getting some, you know, inquiries about other folks who may want to participate. There's some considerations we take around um, phytosanitary measures because Phytophthora morum, as you very well know, is the cause of sudden oak death and nurseries are sort of a hotbed for it. It's a warm and a wet environment, which is sort of the perfect spreader for that um, pathogen. And we want to do no harm. You know, of course, a lot of the preserves and parks that we're out planting in are already affected by this pathogen, but, um, you know, we don't want to exacerbate that. So we mitigate that risk by um, steaming our soil, um, you know, and that's our little soil, soil steamer, which I'm actually really grateful we are planning to get a bigger one and a newer one. So I don't have to be doing that quite so often um, throughout the season. And then, of course, cleaning off our shoes and our tools before we go in the shade house and the greenhouse. That's a, a really important BMP, best management practice, and keeping things elevated off the ground also. So this year, we got a number of projects that we've been growing for, a couple in um, on Mount Burdell, a couple in Tiburon, Stafford Lake, and Hal Brown Park um, are our parks. The Pacheco Valle Milkweed Project is super cool. The Rotary Club is our partner in that, and they're actually donating a couple thousand dollars to, for us to provide plants to them um, to create a more robust milkweed patch. And that brings me to actually milkweed is in high demand as especially now that the tropical milkweed is outlawed in the, for sale in the county. So I foresee a lot more milkweed um, projects coming up to the bubbling to the surface as folks get um, excited about, about bringing the monarchs back. Um, and then parks landscaping. Yeah, I've just been reached out to by Paradise and there might be a project at McGinnis where folks want to have some native landscaping, which I think is awesome um, to get the word out about that. And then looking into the future, a number of projects that um, we can continue to think about. Roy's, as John mentioned, is one that's on the, my forefront of my mind, and I've been going out and seed collecting a lot of really cool um, understory plants, rose and snowberry, and just super fun um, to be out there. So I do think when we look into the future, though, that the sky's the limit on this one. I have a ton of motivation and passion for this, as I hope you can tell. Um, and I think that the public also is, um, you know, trying to chop at the bit to engage with this, this material and this place. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes. So thank you very much. Your passion is quite evident. Yes, yes very wonderful. Okay, questions from the commission? Comments? Well, yeah, yeah, just a, a few practical questions. Um, so, in terms terms of this project, is does the, the park have a commitment to have this as a permanent thing or is it a temporary um, thing? Um, how many FTE uh, staff does it involve? Um, is it funded by Measure A or is it where, where the funding come come from? And and, and a, a few of the like practical parts. Of, of this, I, I kind of understand the, 
the vision, but, but what kind of foundation is it on? Yeah, I can jump in. But, and so it's sort of, you know, like Asia mentioned, this is something that we built several years ago with this vision, you know, sort of copying what Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy has done with GGNRA. They have an amazing nursery program with a, a bunch of different nursery sites throughout the headlands and on the San Francisco side that grow out, you know, I don't know, thousands of plants for restoration projects for the National Park Service. And, um, and so we wanted to build something like it. And we were able to do that when we rebuilt the Lagoon Field Office several years ago. But we just, then COVID happened, we, had, we just weren't able to get it up and going for a while. And Asia's really been able to breathe some life into it and, and, and make it sort of start to be what I think we'd all hoped it could become. And so right now we're trying to envision, you know, what that can look like for the long term and sort of what the business model is in, in the long term to keep that sustained. Um, so yeah, right now, I mean, Asia is a, one of our seasonal employees. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're in the process of just figuring out, you know, um, of course, we have it in our budget to have a seasonal employee each year, but that's only nine months out of the year. And so if this um, really, you know, continues to grow into, into a, the program that it's showing itself to be, you know, I think there's the opportunity to make it, you know, a, a bigger part of what we do. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Asia mentioned that's really unique about this is how accessible it is for volunteers and people who want to get engaged. A lot of the landscape where we do work is, it's hard to access, it's steep. Um, and so um, this is such a neat place that people can really be close to. Okay, thank you. Just what a great program it is. And I think it's so amazing that we can grow the plants that then we put into our parks and open space and great job. This is a very, very interesting project. Um, I see that you have a future partnership with the Indigenous Healing Center. Yeah. You're planning on also having some medicinal plants. Hmm. Yeah, because... Yeah, many of our natives actually are medicinal plants already. Um, um, but but yeah, no, I certainly, we've um, had a meeting with um, Don Pascual and Luna of that um, yeah. organization, and they we may grow some medicinal plants for them. Which would be a really awesome way to support right. their mission. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned it because we are Hena Human Services and we, our hit projects. We have we are we are partnering actually with Indigenous Center. So it could be like a conversation that we have. And uh yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, I like the idea. And thank you for doing this. Yeah. Excellent presentation. This is a natural for bringing in volunteers be worried about you being too overwhelmed with too many volunteers. <laughs> but I also think it's, it's perfect for a uh, partnership. You mentioned Rotary. I mean, we have a lot of Rotarians right. in this county. And I think each of the Rotary organizations could be approached to help with funding. And everyone likes the butterflies. I mean, it just seems like it's a natural. So anyway, good work, great presentation. Keep it up. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Good job. So uh, next up, um, we have a, a presentation about our budget. 
and we'll try to be brief, but we'll also have an opportunity if you have questions and want to dig into any specific parts of this, we can we can do that. I'd be brief. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. And I'll turn it over to Chris. All right. Um, wow, what an awesome presentation we just watched. That was so cool. Uh, and in that same note, uh, I wanted to just take a minute before we get started on this budget. I want to apologize to your commission. I want to apologize to Director Corton and uh, the community members who are joining in on Zoom. Uh, and most importantly, I want to apologize to our staff, our staff who worked our tails off on these presentations today. This was such a rich agenda, probably the one of the most exciting agendas that we've had in my time as the assistant director. And there was a miscommunication with the broadcast company. Um, and we dropped the ball. And I'm responsible for that. So I wanted to apologize for that uh, and just give my staff uh, my sincerest regrets that it happened. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, and all I can do is work hard to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So um, with that, um, you know, we'll move into this budget presentation, but it just is really, it really bummed me out. So um, I apologize for that. So let's talk budget. Let's get to a real exciting, after a nice nursery, exciting nursery presentation, <laughs> we're going to We'll talk budget. It's it's a quick presentation, um, and you know, back in uh, May we came to your commission. Uh, let's see. Let me get to the beginning here. Um, back in May we presented a proposed budget to your commission, and that was a very uh, skeletonized budget because we weren't certain of the future of Measure A. We hadn't gone to the voters yet, uh, and the budget annual budget development cycle required us to go through that process. So. We um, presented a budget that had no revenues coming in. And here's a look at what that, um, you know, our three main funds that can't come into the department uh, and provide the funding for the essential work that we do. And a lot of the work that, that you heard about today. Um, but we had zero revenue coming in because of the uncertainty. And we, we solely depended on the existing fund balance of Measure A to fund the first six months of this fiscal year that we're in. Um, and, you know, while I was sitting there feeling, you know, frustrated at myself for what, what transpired today, uh, I was looking at this spreadsheet right here and I was looking at that zero right in the middle on measure a and the revenues. And I was thinking, well, at least we're not coming to this presentation, um, with an unsuccessful, um, you know, measure a ballot measure. So, um, I was trying to find, trying to find the, the positive to look at. So, um, that's what I'm going to focus on and we'll go from here. Um, so with that, we were relying on about $4.6 million of fund balance to fund um, the first half of this fiscal year with as far as staffing, which equated to about $1.8 million uh, of salaries uh, and benefits, uh, as well as some of the essential vegetation management work um, and some of the small the projects that we've kicked off in the first part of this fiscal year. Um, so um, now we've been, we're successful, right? We know we've got, we, um, the implementation of Measure A uh, hasn't yet begun. It starts uh, October 1st is when the sales tax revenue will actually kick in and we'll start receiving those. So uh, our budget projections are based on three quarters of a year of the fiscal year of revenue. So we're, um, and we're annually, we're expecting about $16 million. So three quarters of that, we're budgeting $12 million of revenue. Um, so uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Um, so this is basically transitioning from that zero to the budget adjustment. So we're looking at um, adding about, let me get my glasses on here. 
uh, about $11 million in expenditures um, and offset by the $12 million in revenue. Um, so that actually decreases the um, amount of fund balance that we are we're planning on spending down. Um, so instead of spending what was expected to be $4.6 million of the fund balance, we actually have reduced that down to $3.7 million. And the intention there is to start to build back up um, that savings account, um, that fund balance, if you will, that will uh, allow us to take on some larger projects or provide funding for one-time capital projects as they arise. Uh, and certainly, you know, be able to give us a little bit of flexibility and responsiveness to budgetary needs uh, in the future. So um, just as you all re may recall, the, as we presented the ordinance and what went to the voters, um, the revised ordinance, this, this go around for Measure A 2.0, as we often refer to it as, uh, is a little bit different. Um, so I just wanted to kind of show how does that $12 million get broken down? Um, so uh, the Parks and Open Space Program, which is 65% of that $12 million, or uh, $7.8 million, that 65% is broken down uh, into um, three different groups. One is the, the Parks and Open Space Program, which is our kind of our general uh, that comes to our department to support uh, work within our regional parks and our preserves. Um, and there is now a new designation, 25% uh, of the 65%, if that makes sense, if you guys are staying with me, uh, is now a set aside for specifically to be used for wildfire fuel reduction work. <laughs> Uh, and that was specifically called out in the ordinance. And that equates to um, $1.95 million uh, of, the, of this year's um, budget. And then we have 10% uh, of that 65% gets set aside for land acquisition. Uh, as you may recall from the presentation earlier on land acquisition, we had actually spent down essentially to $760, I believe, or thereabouts of the first iteration of Measure A land acquisition funds. So this will again, begin to start to build that fund balance back up for land acquisition. Uh, and this, we expect to generate $780,000 this year. 15% um, of the overall measure A coming in goes to cities, towns, and special districts. So of the $12 million, that equates to 1.8 million um, for the cities and towns and special districts. So we're working with our agreements and updating all of those uh, with our cities, towns, special district partners um, to get those agreements up to speed so that the funding can transfer through um, to them. And then there's the sustainable agriculture program, which equates to 20% of the overall measure coming in. Um, and that would be $2.4 million uh, of the $12 million coming in. So that's broken down into three categories, which is a little different than the measure A 1.0. So now the way it, the breakdown happens uh, of that 20%, 50% of that is set aside for agricultural conservation easements. Um, and that equates to $1.2 million. 20% um, of that is set aside for the Marin Resource Conservation District. It's actually a pass-through that goes directly to them. Uh, and that's $480,000. And then 30% of that goes to the newly created and actually still evolving and being created uh, is the Sustainable Agricultural uh, Agriculture Grant Program, uh, and that equates to $720,000. So generally speaking, that's how the $12 million coming in for Measure A um, is being distributed into our, our budget. Uh, and then looking specifically at our Parks and Open Space Program, 
um, that, let's see, what was that? That was the uh, roughly $5 million uh, coming into our department. That includes, you know, salaries for staff, salaries and benefits. Uh, it also includes seasonal extra hires and also includes, um, you know, project dollars by program. So as we budget in our department, we do budget by program. Um, and then within those programs, there are a suite of, of potential projects. And as we work through the year, depending on progress um, development and how things go uh, and as needs arise, there's some flexibility in how we can respond to that. But this table that is up on the screen now basically shows how um, the, uh, the, uh, the adjustments are integrating into our, our budget. So, um, you know, by program, so you can see we we're adding 185,000 plus to road and trail, we're adding 530,000 to vegetation management. Uh, we're adding 1.6 million to the um, wildfire fuels reduction. And you'll note, as I just mentioned, we have a $1.9 million requirement by ordinance, but here it only says $1.6 million. And the reason for that variance is we just took uh, last month to the board of supervisors, uh, a couple of contracts, large uh, vegetation management contracts that um, we knew were gonna qualify for this new category. So they've already been encumbered into that category. So that's why you're seeing that, that variance in that number there. So, um, but the actual total when combined is, is actually over $2 million. So we've actually exceeded the requirement for that new wildfire fuels reduction category. Um, and you see an additional 2.1 million in parks, facilities and landscape. Uh, $800,000 for public engagement and equity, uh, $230,000 uh, uh, to science and research, and $220,000 to um, administration. And just so you know, of those adjustments, $1.8 million of those adjustments is the existing Measure A staff that we funded for the first half of this fiscal year. That $1.8 million is for the second half of the fiscal year. So now those Measure A positions are funded um, through the entire fiscal year. Um, and uh, the last thing that I'll note is um, we have made some staffing changes or we're, we have some proposed some staffing changes um, where we're adding a few staff uh, from various uh, aspects of our department, um, including uh, maintenance and equipment operators. Uh, we're adding with, with the, the impacts of the new or the anticipated impacts of the new wildfire fuels reduction we're gonna be adding um, some support staff because there's, there's a significant amount of additional expenditures required there. And the, the, the efforts that it's gonna to take to keep organized and evaluate and monitor and stay ahead of all that work, um, we're gonna be making some staffing changes. All of these items are all going uh, in a proposed um, a board letter that we're taking to the Board of Supervisors uh, on the 27th of this month. And um, we're, we're optimistic and in, based on any feedback that we get today um, that we'll, we'll be successful in you know, getting those, uh, these adjustments approved. So um, you know, that, that um, concludes my presentation for the day. I actually um, and would be happy to answer any questions that you all may have. Uh, there was, there's a slide on there that I started to add the positions, um, but I will tell you today was one of those days where I didn't even realize I didn't finish that slide until I just saw it on the screen. So um, I will, I will, I'm happy to share with you the, the, any more details or answer any questions that you all may have. Thank you, Chris. Let me bring it back to the commission. 
that was the fastest budget presentation I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> well, it's been a long day, so I'm trying. I'm trying to trying to help everybody, and and it's a budget adjustment update, not the full budget. Yeah, I'm a, I'm just a little confused on a few things. Um, and just a maybe a recommendation is to put your revenues over your first, and then your expenses instead of the other way around. Um, the percentage of money from measure A, previous measure A to the new measure A, the percentage to uh, the parks is still the same, correct? Correct. Okay. So then if you look at page, where, where I'm confused is in the presentation on the first two slides, um, if you look at the second page, yep. So I, I understand your, your revenues, it's nine months out, out of the full year. So that's $12 million. And that uh, agrees to the, the 11.7 million on the other page, approximately, right? Yep. But why does it, the expenses of 15.7 equals a 19.2? I'm just confused on. We're not because we have a million, almost a million dollars, about nine hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars that's going back to the fund balance. That's why you're seeing that discrepancy. So you'll see the the use of fund balance number is is where you're, um, you know. But that's like four. So I, that's what I don't understand. So I get that we basically uh, because we only had revenue for nine months out of twelve months that we're taking from our fund balance approximately $4 million, which makes sense to me. But then our net fund balance is going down by 7.3 million. I don't understand why the two pages aren't matching. That's... Well, so the what you're seeing on the on the... Let's see. So, oh, it's just because the general the general fund is not reflected on um, the second page. on the second. Yeah, that's that's why that number is out of whack. That number that number is including the 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 drawdown or the the burden on the the county general fund. The table on on the second page is does not include that. So but it's still off a little million so, bucks or something. So the first. Yeah, I mean, I think the so the first page you're looking at, and we can always talk about it in more detail afterwards if that's helpful. But the first page is looking at our three different funds: open space, measure A, right. and the general fund. The second page is just looking at measure A, and it's showing the approved budget. It's showing the adjustments to the approved budget, and then the and then what the revised budget is. So, four point six whatever million it was the use of fund balance minus 962,000 should equal that 3.7 million. Okay. That's the revised budget. Does that make sense? Sort of. Um, so are you saying that we are reducing our fund balance by $7.3 million? No, no. So the 7.3 million, again, that's, so the first, the first page that was our approved budget from june of this year so that was right. and it's not just fund balance it's both and this is just for whatever reason this is how when we work with the do the department of finance on our budget they include 
fund balance with the cost to the general fund. So and is this how they do it? Where they do expenses first and revenue? This is, I've this, never seen that. This is how this is how we do it each year. It, this this the I mean, way it's an odd way to show it. I hear you. Yeah, yeah I, it, and so, but the that first page is showing those three those three fund sources, and then what was approved in June. Okay. And then the second one is just showing the revision to the measure A budget because we're not revisiting the general fund budget or the open space budget. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Questions? Not seeing any. Chris, everyone's entitled to a meeting like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rough meeting. But anyway, thank you for the report. I, I appreciate you keeping a brief too. Yes. So we are now down to just any commissioner reports, any activities? Hi. Okay, I'll start with Roger. Well, I just wanted to take this moment to thank Dennis for the leadership that you provided. And, and it's not just as you've been chair, you've been exemplary chair, I think one that yeah. we all want to try to emulate, but I, I've been on the commission, I, I think, for maybe six years, maybe, I'm not quite sure how many years, maybe longer. Um, you've always provided leadership and mentoring, and I've, I've really appreciated that. And um, I think that 16 years wasn't long enough. <laughs> but I'm not to say, but thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, ditto. Um, I had a question regarding procedures, uh, because we got some great presentations today, and I'll, I'll specifically hit the boat ramp, but we didn't get to vote and recommend it to the Board of Supervisors or not recommend it. And our minutes are fairly sparse. So how does the Board of Supervisors get our input if we're not making a recommendation? So there's a few different ways, and I guess to, um start with, we had hoped to present the, the, some of these acquisitions back at the July meeting, but unfortunately there weren't enough commissioners who were able to make that meeting to have a quorum. So, uh, so you are being presented with both of these uh, acquisition items. They've already been approved by the Board of Supervisors at this point. Oh, so, they have yes, already, correct. okay. How but, about the BMX uh, pump track? So one of the things that's really important about this commission is that you are advisory to the Board of Supervisors, but you're also an opportunity for uh, public engagement and feedback from you all as a commission to us as staff to, as we help to develop projects to, to, um, to get ideas and, and critiques and, and, and advice. Of course, the board is able to you know, uh, view the recordings of this, this group and of course, get your recommendation when there are action items. But for um, for items like the uh, like the pump track and like the Roy's Redwoods project uh, that are large, you know, potential projects that are in the planning phases, we consider it an important step to come to your commission to get your feedback because it's it's very valuable to our team, and you often have really great insights about our projects, um, and so. There's no, uh, you know, concrete action that your your commission takes, but it's it's sort of part of our transparent process of of getting feedback. Does the board of supervisors get the minutes prior to their votes? 
or or does it go after the it comes back here we approve and then it goes well and do they get draft minutes they they have access to draft to to your minutes but also the board of supervisors doesn't necessarily have action on many of these items anytime in the near future so for instance the pump track you know uh and uh and and the um Roy's Redwood project, you know, eventually they would approve the contract for that project. Um, depending on what the CEQA compliance is, they may have an action to take to approve the CEQA compliance, but that's probably quite a ways down the road. Um, so it's, it's not so much that your presentation today is directly leading to a potential action by the Board of Supervisors. If that makes sense. I think I've bring this up, brought this up before, but if we could have more robust minutes, um, otherwise it doesn't feel like my comments or other commissioners' comments, you know, are are captured and and then perhaps considered down the road. Okay. okay. Well, just to follow up on that. Um, In my five and a half years of being on the commission, the presentations have been generally terrific and well-informed and well thought out. And we've given feedback. There, there have been instances while I've been here where there are items that are presented where I have an issue with them for some reason or another. And because we're all political appointees, that is, we've been appointed by politicians, we have the ability to go back to those politicians and give them feedback. So in, in instances, I've gone back to members of the Board of Supervisors and said to them, here's an issue which came before our commission. This is what I think about it, and this is what I think you ought to look for. That, to me, would be the best way of giving feedback to members of the Board of Supervisors, at least in my opinion. I understand that, but, you know, again, it's a political – we're – we're in a political process and there are issues that come before us where I have an issue with with a minor thing. And so I say to the supervisors, look at this. And that's, you know, because at the end of the day, we this is about having relationships and going to people who have we relationships with and say to them, you gotta look at this. So that to my mind, that's the well, I, I I'm not I'm not unsympathetic to what you're saying. Think if you really have an interest in affecting a decision that the board is going to make, just go talk to them. Well, and I'd add that your commission has a formal step in many of the policy commissions that come to the Board of Supervisors. For instance, changes in the mm -hmm. code, changes in our fee structure, the, you know, through the met when we were creating the new measure A uh, ordinance. I mean, your your input is you know, the, the board is directly looking for your input as part of that process with our budget, with the vegetation planning that, um, that they don't often have the time to go into depth with. Some of these other presentations that are informational are, are ones where the board doesn't have a, a policy decision in the near future, but we want an opportunity to present at a high level to to your commission about this really important project to get feedback and to provide transparency. I just wanted to add, Mary, that it's not unusual at all that I'll hear from the board about some specific item that they wanted to know was how was the commission dealing with this. 
and the more that you can maintain relationships with the board of supervisors, yeah. it's, it's really valuable. I mean, I've served on a dozen or more government committees previously, and what typically happens is there's fairly robust minutes that go to the board of supervisors or the city council or whoever it is so that they can read the communication that went on. There, there isn't something that just says there was a discussion by, by the board, right? Or the commission. So, I mean, frankly, I don't have time to go run after five supervisors to give them my opinion on this stuff. Well, they will come to you when they have questions and, and they listen. They, they don't come to me, so. They, well, they, and if I could just add, um, we have a new um, uh, assistant clerk to the board. Um, and I actually spoke to her today about the minutes and about the request that you had, because we've been instructed to model our minutes after the Board of Supervisors. If you look at the Board of Supervisors minutes, the minutes that are in today, I wrote them myself, and they are way more detailed than anything that the Board of Supervisors puts together. And I was having a conversation with her, and she said she'd be happy to come before our commission and have a conversation with you all as her direction for to us the 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 liaisons to the various commissions throughout the county on the requirement around minutes so i, I mean i hear what you're saying and I, I i took that to heart and i thought i expanded the minutes pretty well for this meeting um but i also don't know that you were at the last meeting so so you know i i i think that i have been making i've literally been doing the, the minutes myself the last couple of times since uh carla retired and uh, I'm not going to be doing them much longer because we have a new uh, admin staffer who's going to help me with this commission. As you can tell, I've struggled today mightily. So, um, you know, there's certainly more conversation to have, and I, I hear your concerns. And I'm just in in between two situations here that I'm trying to juggle. So, <laughs> no, just trying to trying to be responsive, but um, trying to follow the direction that I'm being told. And just making sure that the commissioners that want to report anything have had that opportunity. Yeah, not much to report, but first of all, thank you for your service, Dennis. I enjoy working with you in many projects. Um, and the, the only thing I have to report is that when October we're doing a celebration of the Hispanic Heritage Month, we and Human Services, and we have invited Parks. I I know Kevin is not here, but I send the email to Kevin, and he's he's making sure that uh, you have that representation. With a table or or somehow in that that festivals gonna happen October 12 from four to six in Venetia Valley School. It's like the school down the road. So thank you very much for appreciate Kevin's efforts to always work with us, and uh, we'll make sure especially that those projects like that the the later about the the plants the the nursery that's very very important and and someone that can connect to to us with the healing plants that I say in our heal projects deals with that too. So thank you very much. And with that. Um, uh, before you adjourn the meeting, I, A, I wanted to say also my express my thank you, um, but B, I wanted to let you know in your absence at the next meeting, we're gonna um, have to have a chair. Uh, so as the, the record reflects from this slate of officers, uh, chair Gordado is the vice chair and chair Stomp is the second vice chair. So, uh, we'll be looking to you. Uh, I'll be connecting with you, uh, Oscar, uh, for the next meeting to plan for the next meeting. And at the next meeting, one of the action items will be 
to develop a slate of officers for the following 